0: here's like a, a classic thing might be like yeah we want to do something super cool da, da, da. and like somebody you know mentioned holograms and that would be so cool and you're just like whoa 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 okay we got to help everyone understand what that means i can tell you we've helped many clients choose older tech dumber tech than cutting edge tech because it just aligned better with what they want to create as an experience mm-hmm.
1: for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself, please?
0: Sure. I'm David Schwarz,
1: one of the founding partners of Hush,
0: which is an experienced design agency based in New York, but working all over the world.
1: If people don't know that word, experienced design, can you explain what that means?
0: Absolutely. It's a terrible word. I don't know why I use it, but it's the word that seems to be uh, an industry term. What's interesting is it's different strokes for different folks. Um, I would say a lot of people... Uh, West or in the Bay Area where a digital product is maybe the hero um, experience design actually refers to like what's in the rectangle, right? Like interface and product experience, um, even on job postings on LinkedIn. That is not what we do. We do um, three dimensional experiences, meaning experiences you walk into around, interact with their physical, they have digital integrated into them. Um, they are at the scale of human beings, rooms, architecture, and t- even urban centers. You know, neighborhood. So, um, you know, it is highly digital, it's highly designed, it's highly visual, highly sonic. But it's really like a sensory, three-dimensional experience we're looking to, to create on behalf of companies who have something to say to the world and and want to have their vision and mission expressed in a certain way.
1: Wonderful a lot of things unpack there in terms of experience design. I think you described exactly the way I feel it. And so just let me see if I get this right. Multisensory, physical, tangible things, and you experience it in real life. This is not a virtual thing. And it's cross multiple design um, thinking, a lot of design skills. There's architecture, product, motion graphics, lighting design, sound design. Uh, What am I forgetting here?
0: Uh you have most of it probably just like the material design so you could call it architectural design or environmental design you know everything in the real world has to be built so there's the element of material scale how you p- assemble things you know that's that so that's in there too
1: Okay so this is a audio only experience uh, can you tell us of something that people might know of that they've walked in prior to the pandemic that they weren't aware that an experienced design firm created a space?
0: Yes. I mean, I would say you could argue that anything you walk into, uh, experienced designers, whether they have that on their business card or not have thought about, right? So the earliest experienced designers were probably, um, you know, the earliest kind of architects and builders, they were thinking about, well, do you walk through a small door or a big door? Is it shaped like a pyramid or a rectangle? Um, I mean, think about temples, cathedrals, you know, all of that was, was using the same kind of thought process of how we as humans perceive our world and how it relates to the senses. So the material of walking into a church, As you stand on a marble floor and your feet echo through the space, you know, that's the sound of, you know, uh, of of, of an entity that is far bigger than ourselves. I mean, I'm not religious, but I'm projecting. And and so that's always been there. But as, you know, we work and design kind of fractures into all these little nuanced design fields and subsets of subsets, I think experience came out of it as a layer that exists between the the big moves of architecture and the the human being so it's like the interface between the human being and the big moves of the architecture and i mean look uh You could any airport you've ever walked into um, any transportation center, um, any retail store you've walked into where, you know, you think about the layer of storytelling that happens on the street level facade before you even walk into, you know, product merchandising to information, content all the way to point of sale. That is all experience. Um, And so, you know, it's pretty easy to 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 find an example um, it's pretty hard to, to not find an example, actually, you know, okay. unless someone's intentionally trying to be so brutalist and, and primitive for a reason. Um, but, but, you know, I digress.
1: But I guess then you could also argue that that's also an experience of just a different intentionality, right?
0: I a thousand percent agree. Okay. I guess because experience is such a broad word yep. and so blurry, we like to call it, uh, at hush. You know, everyone can interpret that in different ways. I think, you know, we have some, you mentioned the ingredients that make up a hush kind of experience. And I think that's kind of the differentiator. And I mean, there's other firms that are great at doing it, but I think we have to include, you know, a real thought around physical form and, and those kind of big moves are real, uh, lean into what you termed as like motion graphic or digital content. And that could be super low resolution, almost at the edge of lighting all the way to, you know, high fidelity, you know, full res content. And then the third part is kind of creative technology. It's like the interactive part, right? It's, it's not about just watching. It's not about a gaze. It's about participating in the space in a way. Um, and that could be as, as, um, abstract as through your body movement and position in space, all the way to various levels of high, high touch interaction that might, uh, you might engage in.
1: Okay. So if I'm understanding this correctly, before we go to the future, I want to go back to the past. So at the beginning of time when a person created a space to be inhabited by more than themselves, like, I guess you could even argue that the, uh, the people who did the paintings in Lascaux by, by painting something on the walls, they've now are shaping the experience as you enter the cave. So this has been predominantly the discipline of architects and probably interior designers. Yes. Okay. Those two people and everybody, I think can understand what that is, but we're not talking about that because if you go and look at the work that you've done, we're now into the 21st century. We're integrating so many different things. And, and we, as we said, it was like multi-sensory. And you were talking about participation. Are we, are we talking about a responsive environment to the human? And is it changing to meet you or are we talking about something different?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think changing, you know, it's it's hard to change millwork right. or concrete, but it's easy to change Digital things that are inherently mutable. So I would think about it as um, spaces that are designed to tell a story, to inspire and motivate. And they do that by responding to what I'm interested in or what I may give to them in a call and response sort of method. So, you know, a space might feel and behave in one way for me but feel and behave in a different way for you. And it's not about some magic, robotic, sentient, you know, understanding of you or me. It's just more like, if you want it that way, Chris, maybe it becomes that way for you. And if I want it this way, it comes this way for me. So I, I love that idea that we we deal with physical constraints that are very hard to change. So we have to work really hard in a specific kind of design to make sure it can accommodate Um, A lot of things we're doing. And then we can think about the digital pieces as this sort of evergreen, iterative, uh, responsive, changing set of of layers that that um, that can grow over time. And I think um, if you think about like architecture, you know, architecture is a super waterfall profession. It's like, you know, you design it, you detail it, you go through a bunch of crazy phases and construction Everything is really rigorous and specific because it has to be, has to stand up, has to be a code. No one is talking about agile development or iterations. They're all talking about landing the plane on time and budget is perfectly close to those drawings or renders as they started with. What's weird in our world is that you want to make something that you vision as beautiful and powerful, but you always leave that space at the end to say, well, design has to be responsive to what people do with it and what's working and what's not. So how do we evolve it, you know?
1: Yeah, okay, so many things to think about here. Uh, I remember seeing someone sharing a video online where it was a museum exhibition. And as you use the hashtag on Twitter, it would pull the hashtag out of the cloud and it would project your thoughts, whatever it is that you wrote, and it would cascade down a wall and hit objects and it was really cool so you were in in essence participating in the space and the design of the experience yourself so if you write something uh that's optimistic that's welcoming it's going to show that And if you write something that's coming from a place of anger or hatred it's going to show that too and it, it didn't just sit there it, it moved and hit objects and there was some physics to it in in the way that it was programmed and that's one thing right yeah. And we we've seen installations at airports where it's like a, a like a cloud of information above you, quite literally, yeah. and it responds to environmental factors, temperature, whatever. Yeah, I've been in a beautiful home. One of our our clients, our architects, and designed this beautiful home where it's all RGB lighting and it responds to what's happening outside. It's programmed to do certain things depending on the time of day and the temperature, so it sets you in different mood or mental states just by using washes of color. And the experience is radically different uh, just by changing it from a cool blue hue and moving into the deeper, warmer colors, the reds, just color alone. Yep. And you have so many other things to work with.
0: Well, I love that you start with color because like, color, like color shifts are like the ultimate motion graphics. It's like one pixel. (laughs) you know, one pixel shifts and it's like, okay, cool. Like I have a sequence over time that changes potentially an entire room or building, you know, it's the most low res, but powerful kind of idea of motion and change. Um, you mentioned a, a few awesome examples there, you know, it's kind of like typologies or archetypes for this stuff, you know, big differences though, right? One in your museum example, you're talking about me being, uh, a. a the driver, me having agency in, in the control of my environment and participating in it. And so I have the ability to sculpt the world around me a little bit, maybe even as a group. And that's cool. Cause in real time, you're sort of, there's a feedback loop that's happening in real time and you can feel the, 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 your effort is rewarded with a response. That's cool. But there's, um, and then the airport, one you're talking about, um, uh, third party information that you have no control over, but just being used to then change you know what, what I feel within a space, which has a lot of value, right? Like maybe um, maybe in an airport when um, it's the high time of, of traffic and there's the most people in the airport, maybe um, you actually want the digital media around you to slow things down. Right to kind of be a counterbalance to the frenzy that happens and the emotional ramp up that happens if you're late to a plane or everyone's coming and going, or maybe you want to incentivize that speed so you keep people moving through and you keep things optimized. Don't know that's strategy, but that's the cool part is you can you know there's a godlike control that can happen too to help people optimize the the their experience. Um, you know there's there's other versions where you're subject to what's happening out in the world, like your Twitter example, like, you know, I could, I could feel what the political discourse is on Twitter at any given time. Um, and I could know what's happening or the level of positivity or negativity or you know, just through the, the five senses. And I don't know, these are, this stuff is, is fun. Uh, what, uh, what we're also getting at, and I really love and uh, you know, since we both went to art center, you know the rigor of that experience and having to really think about design and iteration and permutation and perfection really getting to something that that has value. there's a sort of um, liberation in some of the examples that you said, which is like you're creating systems and rules, but then you're taking your hands off the wheel and it's as much different you know flavor of design or experience design in general where you're you're kind of setting boundaries, um, but you're letting um, other information sort of dictate how things might go. Mm. That's fascinating to me.
1: That's fascinating to me, too. And before we geek out and lose our whole audience, I did want to say one thing, though, uh, if, if I can, before I go uh, back to your origin story and how how does somebody even get into this kind of business? Before we get to that, I want to know where is this all going? As the technology is getting more powerful, more affordable, and you you can buy all kinds of crazy cool lights and have them reprogram. Uh, Let me just state it this different way. Uh, When when car manufacturers started using LED lighting, it changed the way they designed headlights and taillights and the interior cabin lighting. They could do so many different things. Whereas traditionally with halogen bulbs or whatever other technologies they were using before, the shape of the bulb sort of dictated what they can do. And now you're seeing uh, what I guess they call like the eyelash or uh, Thor's hammer. There's all kinds of different things that are happening. So just that technology is an unlock for industrial design and allows designers to think in different ways. We see uh, uh, LiDAR, we see depth camera maps, we see all kinds of motion sensors being available. So where does this all go? In a highly bespoke, incredibly designed space In, in the retail experience of the future, what does that look like? Be a futurist for a second and kind of paint that picture for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, big questions, right? And uh, predicting the future is always dangerous. But, you know, I think, well, to start, right, there's always been this push-pull relationship between the technology and the design form that it lends itself to, right? So, I mean, Justin. Uh, if we even zoomed into like motion graphics, right. It's like a new, a new plugin, you know, is released and then every, everything looks like this for a reason. And then people realize, well, you know, I can actually use that tool in this other way. And it generates this whole other kind of freedom to do this. And then the aesthetic shifts again, and then another release is released and, and so on. And so I think you could look at any kind of, uh, you know, technological innovation or advancement as this, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of, um, what's what's pushing what's the catalyst and what's the response at any given time so technologically everything's getting much more high fidelity right it's like there's a there's a race to this photorealistic infinite plane right and and you're like do i want that do i care about that do i need that and i think the answer is probably no so on one sense, like the display technology and things you see, it's like everything's just like hyper, hyper, hyper real. It's like what happened in film and video, you know, it's like everything got so crisp it became too crisp almost. And then you have the the film buffs thinking about, you know, what it was like on Super 16 and, you know, the throwback. So there's that same threshold achievement it, when it seems like you couldn't do more or more high power. There's another high power. So I think taking that generality you know, I think the, the future of those spaces are going to be a lot more about balance than about like super high tech, you know, uh, almost like dystopian technological future, right? I mean, think of any of those contexts you mentioned, retail or transportation or a home, you know, do you want to walk into the most technologically advanced space No, it's probably not a human press preference. It's probably not related to most brands in the ecosystem don't put themselves at the utmost threshold of technology, you know, in their positioning. Um, So ultimately, like human always wins. I think what happens, though, is as technology advances, it starts to become more invisible. And that invisible stuff is what's really interesting to me. And that's where I think it'll become more of a focus. Right. So imagine spaces not where you walk in. It's like, oh, there's the big screen on the wall. There's the interactive doodad. There's the place where you take out your phone and play with this tablet and look at this augmented reality gag. It'll just be a space that feels almost natural, but those technology pieces will come alive in ways that feel incredibly blurred between what is real and physical and what is technological. You know, let's call it the disappearance of the the, the rectangle or the frame or the edge. I think that's kind of where we'll get.
1: Okay, let me see if I understand that concept. The frame is, is it a device? And then it starts to, like, we think of a computer as something that lives on our mobile or on our desktop on a screen. But are we talking about when you say the disappearance of the frame, is that everything is like the computer or are we talking about something totally different?
0: No, like like where the edge of your screen frame is and where like the world of physical built environment begins is, I think will become a blur, yeah. you know, it'll be like a gradient. So, and here's how, here's why I think that we talk about this all the time at Hush. We call it like de Okay. So you could start from the most high fidelity, beautiful piece of video, and you can start de that down at some point that thing will just become a rectangle of light. You know, it'll just be colored pixels emanating light. And that is exactly what lighting is. You know, that's exactly what you walk into an architectural space with beautiful lighting or 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 your friend's house you mentioned. That's that. So that means that There's every minuscule increment between the highest res Hollywood film and the least res point of LED light in a home. And in between is where things get really interesting, where it's sort of content, it's sort of lighting, it's sort of interface, but it's sort of material. Right. And I think that's frankly, that's like our our most interesting place to design you know, where where we're defining where the frame is or isn't and the content that may go inside of it or around. Does that make, That's kind of like the yes. hypothetical proof that we we work with at Hush to see what we can
1: do. Wonderful. Every time I think I have a question for you in your answer, I have more questions on the answers, not the question I wanted to ask. So awesome. I'll stay here. We're going to stay in the pocket. <laughs> you had asked this question and you said, who wants all of that? Maybe I'm the weirdo. Maybe I'm the one who's like, actually, I do want that. The idea of a smart home where my Nest thermostat knows like when I wake up, when I want it to be warm, when I want it to be cold. So it's learning. Um, and when I talk to my Siri uh, and it's a, hey, Siri, whatever it is, I want to tell her. She's like, oh, I, you prefer this news outlet versus that news outlet. And that's, that's now how I'm getting stuff filtered for me. Uh, a while back, Um, Google was reading our emails and trying to help you. Like, I I know some people are like, whoa, but like when I'm going to the airport, it's like, Chris, I just want to remind you, you know, you have a flight or that flight's been delayed. So you don't need to rush to the gate and kill yourself. Uh, So those kinds of things I like. So when technology, uh, intercedes in our life in ways that, that, uh, anticipate our needs, I'm all for that. Like I wanted to be the smartest home possible, turn off all these devices. We're not here. Or only water the lawn uh, when it's not raining, whatever that might be. And so I think of like if there's a smart home, what is a smart public space? What is the smart retail version of that where I don't feel it's invasive, but it's really like bespoke and tailored to each person and what their needs and wants are.
0: So let me play that back. Okay. Because I actually agree with everything you said, but I think it's different than a little bit what we were talking about. Sure. I think Nest and Siri are perfect examples of what I'm talking about, where they don't scream technology. They're actually quite well, well, Siri is a piece of software, but Nest or Google Home is a product, I think, designed with a lot of material consideration that it sits on your, you know, your, your kitchen counter you know, with as much grace as a, as a beautiful water pitcher, right? And so that that's, that is actually what I was meaning when I said the interface is blurred into the object or the material. It's like it is high tech, but it feels almost analog and low tech. Because, mm. right, Google could have designed that product to be like whiz-bang future tech looking. It could have been... Inner, the whole thing could have been an interface. It could have been moving with data and blah, 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 and lights flashing. You know, that's totally possible. But it was chosen to actually be more core to what we, I think, as humans naturally feel comfortable with. You know, that's 200,000 years of, of life on a planet, right? It sets that, that up in our DNA. So and then you also talked about, you know, this idea that an environment can predict our needs. And I think that's also well within what I think we are talking about. And and that goes into the sort of circadian, uh, lighting that you mentioned, you know, earlier in the the conversation. So, so I'm like plus one on, on all of it. I think just Hush's angle in that, or like our sliver in that, our our area of focus and interest in that is really more about how that takes form in the shape of space around you and less particular like tech and product. Although, you know, for a project recently for HBO, we levered all sorts of, you know, voice control and Google APIs to kind of make that interface of the room really special and really invisible and really magical and really predictive. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's a Venn diagram of of stuff, but, um, I think as as a mood and a direction you you and I are on the same page cuz I want you want nest as an object to do that functionally and feel and look like it does and I want you know entire buildings to be designed that way and perform in that way you know
1: Yeah uh, I I don't know if I got this part right but when they designed the the Apple's flying saucer building in Cupertino Yeah I think the building breathes and allows ventilation to move through so hopefully reducing uh, electricity consumption and just is just it's a smart like it's reacting but you don't know it you don't need to know anything all you know is it, is it cool or is it hot in here today right yeah. something like that that's what we're talking about right
0: yeah and um so that was a good segue one of my favorite projects to date was for this biotech company called united therapeutics um led by a ceo named Martine rothblatt she's she's a super super duper moonshot star shot galaxy shot i don't know far, whatever um she has an amazing ted talk that everyone should watch um but they built a net zero building so it's a smart building much like you mentioned about uh, the foster and partners apple ring um so smart building just means it it has hundreds of thousands of sensors in it hundreds of thousands of robotic servos and control systems and like anything smart it's constantly looking at the data and responding in physical changes to make you know something more optimized from an energy standpoint producing its own solar you know etc so we one of my favorite projects was this we did all the experience design for that building so we brought like all that energy storytelling to life where people could see the things that were invisible to the naked eye because they're happening behind the walls and in server rooms and, you know, operational rooms that no one knows about. And we show how that's behaving in a human way. So I can look at something and say, oh, you know, I should put on that sweater instead of turning down, uh, turning up the heat. Because the building's working overtime to make enough energy right now. So let's let's play my part. So that's that kind of same idea. You can take it at, right up to the scale of a building or even a smart city, as we know, are being developed all over the world from Neom and Saudi Arabia to, you know, Toronto, Waterfront, or maybe that's not happening anymore. But, you know, so we're on the same page. It's a scalable concept.
2: Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to our conversation.
1: Take me through the high-level conversations you're having with a client. Let's say I'm HBO, and 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 maybe I'm not so familiar with the things that you do and how you think and work. How do you guide me through the process of like, uh, David? We want all the whiz bang stuff. Like that's the first right. Like we want to be in Tron 2025 or whatever it is. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, how do you help them make smart decisions that ultimately give them what they want without them, uh, you know, like the nouveau riche who go out and buy a gold-plated Bentley or something like that? are like, oh, we don't want to do that. How do yeah. you guide them through that process? And what are you asking so that you can get a good sense of where they're at so that you can meet them there and deliver the creative genius that you do?
0: Amazing and complicated question. Uh, let's do piece by piece. Okay. So we work in a very niche industry. You know, uh, I love it, but it's niche when you look at the broad landscape of what design can be, which means few clients stumble and fall on us and say, oh, what is that? We want that. Right. You you kind of probably have seen something or have created a, a value prop internally that justifies why you would want to do experience design in the way that Hush does it. So very few clients come with zero knowledge, right? They may have enough knowledge to hurt themselves, but they're very, we're very rarely in a dialogue where we're educating them from zero to you know, 100% of what we do. We're doing a lot of refining and showing what we do, how we fit in, so it's more about like qualifying and sculpting exactly what our, our purpose is, our mission is, and what we do better than anyone else. So let's start there. Let's carve off all the folks who Googled Hush and experience design and, you know, are asking baseline questions. We have six design principles at the company, and one of them is use technology, but with restraint. And here's why. At this point in the in the history of Hush, we kind of did our like rock star new kid thing. You know, everyone has that sort of studio moment. Where everyone's just like, oh, that's new, cool. Like, well, can you do something with that? And we heard about this. Can you try that? And you're like, okay. And we're at a place now where it's much more about like enterprise thinking, right? Where the companies coming to us who are large companies like Uber and and Facebook and um, LinkedIn and financial companies like Barclays and you know whatever. These aren't companies that are. They're not about like the latest, greatest, shiniest, cutting edge, risk it all kind of technology. They have innovation and R&D as part of the company that does that. But if they're going to build out spaces, spend many, many, many months and many, many, many millions of dollars to build things that are going to be with us on this planet for a long time, they're probably not willing to bet the farm on some like hotshot new untested tech. So the conversation becomes, yes, our R&D team is playing with all the stuff, playing with sensors, playing with interactive models, playing with AI, machine learning, playing with big database knowledge, playing with generative blah, 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 playing with, you know, gestural interface, all of that. But we're also filtering it through the lens of value and longevity and something that's more enduring. And then we're helping them make smart decisions. So uh, You know, here's like a a classic thing might be like, yeah, we want to do something super cool. And like, you know, somebody, you know, mentioned holograms and that would be so cool. And you're just like, that is the, that's like when all the bells go off. Like, and on Slack, we're like slacking each other on a call because you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. We got to help everyone understand what that means. And holograms in quotes is like a stand in for something cool. I don't know how to describe it. It might not even be a hologram, but it looks like one. We need help and we need to understand the value proposition for any of this technology and why. And so at the end of the day, it just becomes about like helping them know that we know the latest, greatest, but that might not be the choice. In fact, I can tell you, we've helped many clients choose older tech, dumber tech than cutting edge tech because it just aligned better with what they want to create as an experience. And they were happy and we were happy. I mean, this back to that biotech company, the project is on our website. We used, um, we did a 60 foot diameter lighting sculpture that was in the big atrium of the building. And the only complicated tech in that was some backend software to do some data viz. But the front end was a bunch of stainless steel fins and lighting that's been around for 20 years. So it did the job better than any higher tech solution could do. And it was really powerful. So anyway, I think it's like an honesty with it. We're not just pushing to push.
1: Right. There's a lot of restraint. Otherwise, it's not going to do its job, I think, and probably won't age well for the client. And that reflects poorly on you. Exactly. Like they rip out what, what's there because people are like, oh, this is a disaster. Yeah. Because we, we went with the gold uh, Bentley. And you didn't talk us out of it, Dave. How could you, yeah. right?
0: I mean, look around your, your studio or my room here. It's like every piece of technology that I thought was amazing and designed and the the Bentley is now a brick on a shelf or a, a wearable fitness tracker that, you know, you know, is added to the pile or, right. you know, or, uh, a, a, you know, it's like it's stunning how fast we devour this stuff. And so when you're building at architectural scale, you have to think of that technological permanence, not just in the, the hardware side, but also the software side. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I have this question for you, uh, which might throw you off a little bit. Are you in your home office right now?
0: I am in my home office right now.
1: OK, here's the question.
0: Which doubles, which doubles as a guest bedroom.
1: OK. I always wonder this because I just looked at the thing you did for Uber, the lights racing around. Yeah. Beautiful. That's what got me like, I'm not thinking about my office the right way. <laughs> of course, I don't have the money and the the, the time and the, the creativity to do all that stuff, but it set a very high benchmark for me. I've always wondered this about architects and then you. How come architects' office always look like the dumpiest places they've ever designed? And then I wonder what it's like for them at home. And is it always that you're so busy crafting spaces for other people that you don't want to go back home to something like that? I look at your office. It looks like a traditional home with crown molding, (laughs) paneled wood doors and a gold mirror and a surfboard in the back. This is not how I imagine uh, a a 21st century experienced designer, a guy who runs a firm talking about these things. I, I imagine this is your crazy Batman cave with all kinds of experiments running around in the background.
0: That's an interesting and very personal observation. <laughs> um, I think, you know, well, there's there's a couple of phenomena, right? One yeah. is the, the cobbler's kids have no shoes yeah, problem, yeah. right? Which is, yep. you know, you do spend a lot more time intensely focusing on the the things that occupy the bulk of your day, which is clients and, and work and things like that. Um, and you expend a lot of energy doing that. I mean, I yeah. find that like, I, because I love what I do, I spend a lot of energy outwards in the business, not because it's necessarily always demanded of me, but because it's like, it's where I would love to put the energy. And, um, you know, I, I don't often have enough left, you know, to come back and, and restart giant projects here. The other thing though, is if you ask me like, what would be a perfect place to live or a perfect space to be in, it would be empty and it would be material and it would be, and maybe the only digital thing in it would be lighting and sound. You know, it wouldn't have screens. It wouldn't have interfaces. It wouldn't have, and that's not to say those things are bad or not valuable. Obviously our whole business runs on that, but the context that I want to be in as an offset for the things I think about all day is a really antithesis to that. It's almost like a more meditative space. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's an easy one. Like I would never, I would never design a home space or even a home office in the way that we design spaces for, for our large clients. You know?
1: Fascinating. So for you, cause you're immersed in this stuff all the time, it's almost like your, your mental floss Or your ginger, a palate cleanser. So it's a very neutral space. Yeah. So that your brain can be free to think of new ideas. It's like your blank canvas. So it's not overstimulating you, right?
0: Yeah. Well, what's interesting, Chris, too, is, you know, like a year before the pandemic, we redesigned our studio, which, you know, was bad timing, but it's still there and we're still there on and off and it'll be there when everything is normal again. But, um, you use the word palette cleanser and ginger, which is great, but the palette cleanser was the formal move we made in the studio. And, and the studio is similarly minimalist and material, except for a very specific area of a gallery where we, where we set up a lot of the prototypes and the kind of tests we did so people could see and touch the kind of, you know, elemental aspects of what we do at a much larger scale. That's all digital and cool. But everything else is very minimal. And and what we did was we created um, with the architects uh Inaba Williams, we created this volume when you walk in, that's like a, I think it's like a 60 foot white extruded box. Okay. And concrete floor, white, white, white. That's mm-hmm. it. And it's got a single line of light um, running overhead. And it's got these stainless steel fins on the ceiling that we custom designed and fabricated. So these really beautifully reflected sort of fins that ripple on the ceiling. And all you can do in that first 60 feet, if you're an employee or a guest or a client or a delivery person, is be incredibly self-conscious around yourself as a human being and the the very minimal gestures we made. And so you're conscious of your steps and the sound ricocheting off the wall. You're constant conscious of the your image and reflection flickering above you as you kind of progress. And all you see in front of you is a box which goes out to the windows that overlook the the East River. So it's really self-conscious design intended to be a palette cleanser for everybody who walks in there. There were ideas early on, Oh, it'd be cool. You put your work up. It'll be beautiful. It'll be like a gallery, you know, for the work. And I was like, no, man, I was like, I want every designer, every employee who walks in here to forget what they did last night, you know, forget what they're working on and just start fresh every day with just their like senses being ready to think about the new problem. And in that sort of uh, maybe connects back to, like, how would you design your own home? We spend a lot of time in the studio. So that's our home. It's about being conscious of that. And then when we do the work, the work then integrates all the technology pieces and the flash and the the other stuff that we really put the effort into the work. So the, the backdrop is this more minimalist canvas studio space where the work can be seen as differentiated, you know.
1: I like that. In a way that you described that, I think it answered many of the questions and the the ideas that you've brought up. In experience design, it starts with an intention, a feeling. You want people to be self-reflective, to be almost meditative, so that when they come and see you, they're starting with a blank canvas. By walking through this, they're stripping away what is literally behind them and entering into something different. And and that's experience design. And you're using then the materials, the volume, the surfaces that you think are going to best shape and create that experience. And so perhaps that's what uh, I'm guessing now that you start off the conversation with. Whoever is leading a project on the client side is what is the point of this? What is the feeling? How do you want people to behave? How do you want people to experience this thing? And then allow you then to come up with whatever it is that you think has to happen for them.
0: That's right. So your palate cleanser nomenclature is exactly what we use, which is, and it goes back to the question you asked, which is what do you do when a client's saying X or Y and they, they want Tron or some dad, you know, uh, minority report reference, like by squeezing them through this tunnel, it reduces all the clutter that they came with the baggage. And it gets them to remember that wow, you can create experiences with just a few moves that make you really conscious of what you're feeling and seeing and knowing. That starts at a baseline, and then we can build up from there. Do you really want that? Oh, you do. How would that work? Okay, cool. It's very hard to kind of like rewind from clutter and complexity. So if we start at a nice, simple baseline, we can show them how each additional move, each additional design layer changes the game, changes the experience one by one. So yeah, it's all coming back. I mean, this was like really good. This is where we started that conversation.
1: Okay. Um, I want to rewind a little bit. I want to, I'm thinking you and I, we have some crossover in our experience, our education, and we both went to art center, although you went a few years after me, almost 10 years after me, uh, and we, we both have a relationship with a gentleman named Jose Caballé. Uh, so I wanted to know, uh, you're, okay, you're a founder and a partner at, at Hush here. With all the different disciplines that you're uh, exercising, what did you study in school? What, what prepared you for this moment? So
0: I think a lot of time prepared me for this moment. School like accelerated it. You know, it was like the gasoline on the fire. So a couple things. Working backwards, I went to a, a graduate program called Media Design at the time at Art Center. So I had had some time to realize what I didn't want to do and look at and study things I didn't want to do, and really come to the place where I knew what I wanted and I was ready to like really push after it. And that was a really amazing place at Art Center, and a really amazing program. But going backwards before that, I, I I worked a little bit in San Francisco in interactive design in 99, 2000, 2001. This was, you know, a major moment. Hillman Curtis, you know, Flash, Macromedia, the promise sure. of broadband, uh, web, the web with no bounds. And it was a play space with no UX anything. Um, so it was a fun time to be involved there. Before that, I got a much broader degree when I was in, in undergrad. You know, I studied architectural history and drawing, but I also did economics and had an economics degree. So I was this like crazy, frenetic mix and mess of of not knowing what I wanted and wanting everything simultaneously, um, which I think set up pretty good for what I ended up doing. So Arts Center really kind of like demonstrated to me the interdisciplinary nature of design, which was reflected in, you know, what we created at Hush, I think it, it allowed me to see that, yes, the industry is has silos and there's particular companies and marketplaces and services and things like that. But for certain types of design, it's a real melting pot of, of, of strategy and visual design and sonic design and physical product, you know? And I was like, where can I do that again and get paid for it? You know, it was almost like Mm -hmm. art center was amazing, but you could bottle it up as like this thing that maybe only exists in academia. But I kind of just said, it's interesting. We're solving some interesting problems. So let's see if we can make this into a business. I didn't say that proactively at the time, by the way, I don't, I only know this in retrospect, but it became kind of obvious that the, the way of thinking and the mix of disciplines is sort of what we pursue at Hush. And by the way, it's not easy. You know, the business model of multidisciplinary design is hard because you're constantly juggling a lot of factors and it's not as clean as a model around, let's say, um, identity or or, you know, branding or 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 web design. Right. So but we did it anyway. And that's how we got there because we wanted to just be happy and to be able to like you know flex the muscles we thought we had.
1: Yeah, There's this is term that people like to use, and I always bristle and like really, but I actually think you warrant it. Like people say, they specialize in generalizing. I'm like, <laughs> that's you just saying I'm not going to be committed. <laughs> earlier on, you said, I'm really in a niche industry. There's not that many people that do what we do. And the number of clients that are looking for this kind of stuff. That's actually very small. You're not getting a lot of uninformed buyers who are just randomly poking around the internet and find you and say, oh, today I'll do this thing. But your firm is set up to be highly specialized in experienced design, but it requires you to have some level of mastery over multiple disciplines because you're the orchestrator. You have to bring it all together for it to work seamlessly. So maybe you're the first person I know that's like can actually truly claim that you specialize in generalizing. How do you respond to that?
0: That makes me sound a lot more talented than I am. (laughs) Um, You know, if you can be both I and T-shaped or, you know, you could specialize and generalize. Um, I think I'm really good at pretending. I know a lot about a lot. Um, and I know enough about a lot to kind of weave things together. So you, you, you said the word mastery. I don't think that's it, right? Like I look at everyone at my company and I'm like, wow, there's so much better and capable in almost any single discipline, whether it be technical in terms of like, or, you know, you can render or you can, you know, animate. Um, but even more than that, you know from a, a knowledge and career path and understanding of you know how production truly works how technology development and r d truly like i mean i rely on those people being incredibly smart but maybe i'm good at orchestrating how that those minds come together in the right order and sequence and waiting to sort of deliver what we want to deliver as all these forces interplay on each other right You know, if every project is really has so much to do with um, the built environment, technological innovation and possibility and time and money, you know, what do you lead with? What one's driving at any given time? And that's kind of where I really lean in. I can kind of know when to really, really, really push creatively or really push into form or really ask that we stretch the technological boundary or really say, you know, this thing is got to generate a ton of profit right now, you know? And, and being able to like steer in that way, I think is good. And I have a great bunch of people who help, like, once we kind of steer in a direction, like, how are we going to keep going that way? You know? So that's kind of a cop out, but (laughs) I enjoy, like, I enjoy learning from everybody and I I stay enough apprised that like you could throw me in a, in any boardroom for like an hour and I'll sound super smart, but if I have to stay there for like two hours or three hours, like I'm going to start to get to the limits of what I, what I know. But that's great. Cause I can just, you know, punt it to, Hey, smart person there. You have, the, you told me about <laughs> that. Why do you talk about that? You know? uh,
1: or you do the, uh, the disappearing act, the Clark Kent was like, you know what? I have an emergency. I forgot. I got to leave <laughs> you guys. Thanks. I'll leave at a genius and I'll walk away at this point. <laughs> okay. I want to come back to this thing where for a person like me who barely finished one degree at highly focused on graphic design and packaging at that time, that's what it was called. It's hard for me to even put myself in your shoes. I mean, let's look at it. Undergraduate degree, architecture history, like what does one even do with something like that? Interested in economics? Uh, Okay. What are you going to do? You're going to give (laughs) tours at the museum what are we doing here with our lives right david and then you're like you know what let me go back and get my master's degree finally somebody's like all right you're going to make an adult decision you're going to do this thing and then you pick media design like you like pick the most abstract weird things i have to ask you this question did you know that all these pieces were going to come together to prime you to be in this position that you're in today no of course not
0: that's the folly of everybody in an audience watching a speaker speak or listening to a podcast, for that matter, which is, you know, uh, everyone had it all planned out and you're just punching right. the list of things you needed to do. And, and you had the Google Map directions to what you <laughs> want to do. You know, in, in retrospect, everything's a straight line, you know, but in life, everything's really curvy and, and stop and start and steps forward and back. So. Your notes are good, but they leave out a little bit of of nuance in the sense that I was always making stuff and designing stuff and drawing buildings and throwing pottery and it was there always. but I was always you know my my father was an entrepreneur had his own business that was a model that I understood and probably it was like, yeah, so you know, do should I work for someone or do that? And so it was a, it was, it was understood to me as a possibility. Like, oh, you can run your own business. So that was there. So the economic stuff was just like, man, I should probably have no basics of how things work. You know, from a small standpoint of like a business to a marketplace to a country to the globe. You know, it's it, it would be nice to have that language. I found it completely useless, frankly. It was academic at best. But you know, I thought that was something interesting to explore. So, it was always pulling on these like qualitative and quantitative characteristics. So if you ping pong them back and forth between that enough, you know, maybe you end up at Art Center at a program that you know posits that you can use those ingredients to make interesting design. So, Art Center was a huge pivotal leap for me. I slept on that floor every night. I think I worked harder than I do now. And, um, you know, it was transformative. It was like I could not consume enough. I could not be more intimidated by looking through the glass of the labs and seeing stuff happening and being like, who is doing that? What is that on their screen? Like, I could never do that. So it was this feeling of just like such like just intimidation that it motivated me to like, I don't know, do anything. And frankly, I wasn't amazing. So I was just trying to, like, fight my way through it to try to learn and do as much as possible if you continue to draw lines between a few of the same things that, you know, you had interest in and repeated enthusiasm and you're just going to get a tighter circle over time. Um, I also wanted to make sure the audience knows like you were pretty self deprecating about barely finishing undergrad and, you know, you also barely finished undergrad fine, but you started an amazing company that was like, had this lore about it when I was in school that was like, Oh, blind. Oh, ugh. you know, <laughs> So you should give yourself a lot of credit there. You know, it, it left a legacy of like, holy shit, you know, we want to do that. You know, I want to do that. So you, you had a good influence.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Okay. I have more questions in time. So I'm going to ask you to do something which I normally don't do. I want to do rapid fire. Can you do rapid fire with me? Absolutely. Okay. Because there's like five or six burning questions and uh, I want to get through this. So
0: Okay. I'll keep my response short.
1: Sure, please. Um, I I wonder if you're unemployable in that nothing is going to fit you, so you have to make your own thing. How do you respond to that?
0: That is a very true statement. And it's also, to be very candid, uh, a, a fear inducing statement. Whenever uh, Hush has had any bumps in our history, the idea that I would ever not have this vestige of myself and being to optimize what I want to do in the world is is incredibly fear-inducing. And um, I've had to wrestle with that a couple of times in our history. Not not currently, so that's good, but yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. So if I'm to take that one step further, then uh, because you know your nature and what you want in life, did you burn – purposely but is the bridge behind you burnt there's no retreat it's like you got to do this or there's no plan b for you you got to make this work no matter what
0: yeah there's no plan b because it's it's optimizing like all the things i like and think about naturally and i'm i'm genuinely interested in and have longevity in themselves so they're not finite i'm not going to run out of desire to think about human beings and the way we operate in this world and how we perceive and feel based on design. Like that's, I can die. And, and if I do that from now until then, I'll be happy. I think what, um, what I want to make sure I'm doing personally, and this is, you know, this is part of Hush and also addition to it is that, is that what Hush is and what I do at Hush is constantly evolving, right? So Hush 10 years ago is not what Hush was five years ago is not what it is now. And my role in the company is changing over time. So, as long as I can iterate within that framework and create tangential things and add ons and side projects that all stew in the mix, I'm happy.
1: Mm. I think Steve Jobs said at Stanford during his commencement speech that you can't see, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only see them looking backwards. So, if I'm a young person and I hear that, Look how it worked out for David. He's a creative unicorn. And I'm in high school and I'm listening to this and thinking, is all going to just work out. Or is it? Because you're the success and maybe there's a couple other people, maybe the majority is, uh, they had a hard time bringing all these disparate interests uh, together. What kind of advice or gem can you throw at them where they're navigating these weird interests in different things that are not even connected remotely? They're very divergent in their thinking. And they want to land where you landed, not in the experience design, but finding and creating a life for themselves based on their 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 superpower, their interests. What can you say to them to help them avoid crashing and dying, Uh, not literally, but burning out and and having success?
0: So I think it's about being very self-reflective and very self-conscious and about being very demanding about what you want to do on this planet you know, what you what you feel you want to accomplish on this planet. And I, I mean that you should be constantly evaluating if what you're doing today is bringing you happiness, has enough room to explore. Do you see enough runway ahead? Do you see people in the ecosystem around you that are like who you would want to be in X number of years? Do you see how your role can evolve? Is it bringing you satisfaction? Do you have runway? And if you constantly are asking yourself that, well, then maybe what you're doing is just picking up an experience and adding it to your bucket. And at some point you might realize, you know what, I I understand this and there's more to pursue, but I might want to pursue something else because that also seems interesting. So do that, be self-reflective, add that to your bucket. Hopefully they're not totally disparate in opposite directions, right? Hopefully they're somewhat in the world together. So you're constantly like putting together what becomes this really massive and wonderful Venn diagram of your experiences in life and professionally, and you're amassing skills and those skills relate to other skills, but not exactly the same. You're drawing lines between everything. And, and that's your professional life. I mean, that's life, but that's your professional life. And I think at the end, you know, or let's say farther down the line, you become able to better frame out what you really enjoy and what you do best within all of those circles. Um and hopefully that's someplace and hopefully you can find some place where that that role and that that sort of output is is really valued. Um if you stop being self-reflective at any point, that's when five years go by and you don't know what the heck happened. And now you're off on a trajectory way away from the thing that you you loved. So I would say be ruthlessly self-reflective, but also know that you're picking up a bunch of skills that take time. You just got to be in the game.
1: That's probably a good point for us to wrap up our conversation, but I'm not going to let it go there since it really so nicely tied together that tunnel you're talking about physically being self-reflective. And now you're saying from a career life point, if you be self-reflective, so they, 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 mirror each other, but I wanted to just throw this out there. I may, I may not, uh, this may not be accurate, so feel free to, to change or answer this any which way you want. The, the experience design that you're doing now, as we see it, isn't like uh, the cathedral or the church, from my point of view, that was built hundreds of years ago. Because you're integrating so many different things, and it's a fast-evolving industry. So just, I would say, even a few years back, perhaps this thing called experience design isn't even a thing. And then when you go to the art center, media design, it sounds like a pretty new thing to me too. And you're constantly jumping into new things without any certainty that any of this is ever going to work out. Maybe you don't even see it coming together just yet at that point in time. I have to guess, some sense of fear has to uh, be overcome with some sense of faith that it's going to work. I don't mean religious uh, faith, but just faith that, you know what, I'm smart, I'll figure it out if the opportunity doesn't present itself, I'll either make it or I'll adapt and I'll change. How do you respond to that?
0: Yeah. When you're trying to define what an industry or a marketplace may be, you have to place some bets. And I think we're always a little bit out over our skis with what we think is going to be viable, viable, interesting, valuable. And some of that is faith or maybe better said gut. Uh, gut about what you think would be wonderful, beautiful and uh, and valuable. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're so far out that it's it's a win or lose sort of mentality. But we've definitely been uh, out too far at times in our in our history. And then we've also been not far enough, you know, we 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 flew a little bit not enough on the innovation curve and that constant juggle is still present. Look, you know, to what just happened in the world. You think that uh on March or February first, two thousand twenty-one, I was talking at a conference in Amsterdam about experience design and how important it is and how it can be the inspirational touch point uh for for workplaces and and places of commerce and and culture and how um you know this is this kind of stuff is what draws people out and keeps people there uh, a month later if i had said the same thing on any stage i would have been laughed at so i had i stood at the edge of that precipice which was is what we're doing here not viable in this world anymore and, um, I think as a company, we had the faith to know that humanity, much like I said before is, is, you know, we got hundreds thousands of years of, of DNA, you know, motivating us to be out in the world and to experience things. And so this is a blip on the radar and ultimately, you know, there's value in, in, in quality experiences that exist in the real world. So we had to have a lot of faith in that moment and now it's kind of coming back in the way that proves it.
1: Wonderful. Love it. Thank you very much, David, for being my guest today on our podcast, for sharing your story, your experience. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be able to jump into this, feel slightly reassured that what they're doing will add up. And I love this thing. I think you said three V's, but I couldn't make out the first or whatever. Viable, valuable. What was the third V? I,
0: I think it might have been inspirational or or. I don't know.
1: I wish they'll
0: just be because 3B is better <laughs> than 3B. I thought two you were like, you know,
1: just <laughs> dropping rhymes on us, you know, with alliteration, everything. Okay. So make sure that what you're doing is viable, valuable, and that you have some runway and just be reflective of all that. Wonderful. Thank you very much, David.
0: Hey, great to talk to you, Chris. Thanks. My name is David Schwarz, and you're listening to The Future.
2: Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better.